The text for this morning's sermon is found in Romans 3, if you want to turn there. Be Romans 3, 9 through 26. And uh, you may want to put a finger in Romans 8 and Romans 12, too, after you're at Romans 3. Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works, no law For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has become manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would enlighten our eyes to see wonderful things in this good news in your word in chapter 3 of Romans, in the outplaying of this good news in chapter 8, chapter 12, this amazing letter where your gospel is put on display and practical application from those mercies just as given. Lord, I ask that your spirit would work. I know there's no nothing in my words or myself that can make any change in anyone's life, but it's when your spirit takes your word. Lord, I pray you would work in us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder what you would consider to be a crazy life. If you were to live a life or a lifestyle, what would a crazy life be in your mind? Are skydivers crazy? People who jump out of planes every day for a living? How about storm chasers? Are storm chasers crazy? Not in my opinion. I like to calculate how close they want to get to the tornado. Anything inside three miles seems crazy to me. How about... Bull riders, are they crazy? Do they make crazy choices in how they live their life? How about these guys who jump off cliffs with these wingsuits and see how close to the ground they can get and how close to trees they can pass? And these are real people. When I had Netflix... I watched the wingsuit guys. I can't remember what the documentary is called. But here's how the documentary goes. 60 years ago, there was a guy who invented a wingsuit. 
He did all these amazing things and he died. And then came along the next guy and he broke all these records and made this type of suit and he died. And the whole documentary. And then you got these people at the end that are still alive. It's just like, man, just say goodbye to them now. They're, they're not going to make the next documentary. Are these guys crazy? How about Packer fans? You know, when they scanned the crowd there in Green Bay, if they make it into the stadium, that is, from the parking lot. No. <laughs> we live in a world where people climb skyscrapers, hang off the edge of it, and take a selfie. Are they crazy? What does a crazy life look like? If you were to judge the way you lived your life in 2015, if you're going to go look at the last year of your life and you were going to rate it on a crazy scale, and when I say crazy, I mean in the negative. You know? Dumb. Foolish. Ten being the craziest, one being the safest, what number do you give yourself over the past year? I mean, you live in South Dakota, right? How, how high can this number be? I want you right now to either write it down or think it in your mind. I'm serious. How crazy has your last year been in the way you lived your life? Think of the number. Write it down. Now I'm going to submit to you, I think by the end of this sermon, some of you are going to realize that you've lived lives twice as crazy as any storm chaser. That's just my prediction. What we're going to do is look at my favorite passage in the Bible. Romans 3. I don't know where else the Gospel becomes so clear. If you understand the book of Romans, it starts with Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And then right after that, it says the whole world is under God's judgment for sin. And then the grace of Christ is pointed out. And then it's pointed out that it's received by faith. And then He points out the benefits of the grace of God, becoming sons and daughters in chapters 8 and becoming more than conquerors. And then it culminates. You get to chapter 12. And Paul says, therefore, considering all these mercies in the good news of our salvation, how ought we to live? And so we're going to spend the most of our time in Romans 3. We're going to look at Romans 8 for a moment. Then we're going to consider life application in light of the grace of God. And in your notes, as we're going through Romans 3, I just have ten questions down to consider. You know, when you're, here's just a challenge to you. When you read your Bible, if you're like me, it's so easy just to read. And, you know, you can just go two, three paragraphs. And sometimes we just need to stop and say, really? Really? Do I believe this? That's what I, that's what these questions are meant to do as we go through Romans 3. And then the charge of the sermon is to live your life, your next year and your life in light of the mercies of God. And at that point, we'll evaluate how crazy we are. So, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 1. I'm just real quickly going to 
show you verses 16, 17, and 18. Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. Gospel means good news. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, you should circle the righteousness of God because it's on the table. The good news is the good news is because the righteousness of God comes on the scene. And the next two chapters is about how you get in on the righteousness of God. And Paul arguing that it, you don't get in on it through the law. But he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Right standing before God, righteousness before God, justification for God begins with faith and ends with faith. It's no other way. And then he says in verse 18, and here's kind of a transition. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So that he just makes a sweeping statement. All humanity because of their unrighteousness. Because when the truth comes to them, whether it's through creation or divine revelation, man takes it and he suppresses it down. Because of that, the wrath of God is on humanity. And in verses 118-32, he talks about how the Gentiles are under this wrath. The Gentiles being anyone who is not Jewish. Those who didn't receive the law, but we find out in chapter 2, verse 15, even the law of God is written on their hearts. And then it's revealed to them through creation. The Gentiles and the Jews. Romans 2, all the way through 3.8 is Paul arguing that don't think you're any better off, Jews. You've been given the counsel of God. You've been given the law. And that's revealed your unrighteousness. You're under sin as well. So it's, Paul is like this mighty lawyer given his best prosecution against the whole world. Jews and Greeks. Now, I just want to make a side point here. What we're doing in chapter 3 is the Gospel. So, some of you might say, I don't know what I would do to share the Gospel with someone. Well, if you just follow this sermon, man is dead. Every man is dead in their sins. Prosecuted. Wrath of God on them. The law represents His holiness. Here's where we start. Here's where Paul starts. And let's pick up in verse 9. What then, he says, are we Jews any better off than the Gentiles? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all both Jews and Greek are under sin under sin. Don't pass that over. Everyone is a slave. Sin is a master. You're under it in the sense that you can't get out of it. It controls you. You're enslaved. The whole world is enslaved to sin. And just in case we don't get the picture... 
He says in verse 10, as it is written, and here he quotes Psalm 143.2, none is righteous. Get all these no's and not any's. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Really? Here's where we stop. Really? Nobody seeks for God? How many testimonies have I heard where I've just always sought God? I've just always loved God. Well, God, I believe God can save a four-year-old. So the, the seeming reality of seeking God has always been there. But the Scripture says, seekers aren't born. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. Think about that for a minute. A few verses later, we're going to find out how Paul views sin and what our purpose is to glorify God. As sinners, we are dysfunctionate at our main purpose. When we sin, we fall short of the glory of God. Our very purpose self-destructs in our sin. No one does good, not even one. So the first question is, do I really believe that I was born a sinner? Because in our flesh, in our heart of hearts, we really like to think that we're kind of cute and lovable and that God just couldn't help but love how cute we are. Yeah, they make mistakes and they screw up, but I just gotta send my son to. Yes, the Father's love is beyond what we can imagine. And what makes it amazing is that we weren't cute and we weren't lovable. We were sinful. Do I really believe I was born a sinner, a rebel, had become worthless, and that I'm a slave? to sin so that my whole life is denying the glory of God. Later in this letter, he says anything done outside of faith is sin. So even the good deeds, the outward good deeds of non-believers is still sin because even those good deeds were meant to go to the glory of God. And if they don't trust in the glory of God, they won't give Him glory. It's not done by faith. And then in verse 13 through and verse, um, verses 13 and 14 speak of the sins of our mouth. He gives two examples here of what our sin looks like. First, he starts with sin of the mouth. Their, their throat is an open grave. Look at this word picture. You see, we don't get the full weight of this because when was the last time you walked by an open grave? Well, Paul's folks have all walked by an open grave. It has to be the most hideous smell we can ever imagine. And he says, when human beings open their mouth, it's like an open grave. That's bad breath. He's quoting Psalm 5, 9, Psalm 140, verse 3. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Or before that, it says the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now, we just know this, don't we? Even as people who are born again, do we not find ourselves... Just mumbling under our breath, bitterness and curses. And, and you're on Redeem's Day. I mean, this is, this is what you do, even if it doesn't come out of your mouth, even if you don't open that 
stanky thing. You're still cursing and have bitterness in your heart and in your mouth. Do you, do you, do you realize that when you speak, your heart is revealed? Are you seeing what your mouth is saying? Seeing the fallenness. And then in verse 15, we, he gives examples of sins against other people. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. Imagine playing follow the leader with a human being in this context. All right? You're following a person. It could be any person because we're all fallen. What does it say? Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and ministry. And the way of peace they have not known. This was like living in the world with people, right? Your parents were sinful. My parents were sinful. Your co-workers are sinful. And the path you're walking is crazy. And you would not describe it as the way of peace. Because in the path of sinners is ruin and ministry and, and misery. We create destruction in our sin. He's talking about you and He's talking about me. There He quotes Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8. And then in verse 18, He gets to their main problem. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's... Man is not recognizing the godness of God. Therefore, they do not tremble or worship or glory in Him the way they ought. Because what has He already said? They've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for these created things. So do you see your sin not only of your mouth, not only against other people, but your sin against God? And then he says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, whether it's the law written on the heart of the Gentiles or to the Jews. I think he's really focusing in on the Jews here. Now, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world will, may be held accountable to God. Do you believe you're accountable to Him? Do you believe you're accountable to God? Here's what he says to the Jews. That law was given to you to show you that God is holy and that you will give an account, that you are accountable, and that you're a sinner. The law was given to shut mouths so people would stop coming up with the defense. Yeah, but I did this. Yeah, but I did that. No, the law was given to shut you up. Douglas Moo writes, what then is the purpose of the law of Moses? It functions to make people conscious of sin by setting forth God's will in great detail. The Mosaic law ab makes absolutely clear that it is the living God whom we offend when we sin. It thus gives to humanity a clear understanding of its accountability before God. We hate accountability. They hated it in the garden. Adam and Eve. And this nation, this is the battle cry. Autonomy. Freeness. I just 
read an article that uh, David emailed to me on the Gospel Coalition website by Brett McCracken. And it was, it was entitled, Lordship is Not Legalism. But in there, he talks about how the article is, what does it look like living a countercultural life in America? And he says, well, what's the main message of America? And he argues it's autonomy. Accountability to no one. We are a do-it-yourself nation, he writes. Self-made, unregulated, freedom fries. Our mantras are be who you want to be, follow your dreams, find yourself. We celebrate not only individualism, but expressive individualism. To use sociologist Robert Bella's term, this is no constraints individualism bound only by the frontiers of emotion and imagination. This is a world whose model of courage are men who decide they are women. If you can dream it, you have every right to be it. Indeed, this ethos is perpetuated by every young girl who belts out Elsa's anthem. This song is sung in my house all the time. I know the song, Let It Go. (laughs) But I'm a little convicted. (laughs) Here's one of the lines. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And Paul says, baloney, you're not free. You're accountable to God. And the law should be clear enough that we're all going to give an account to Him. And then look at verse 20. For by the works of the law, so the law shows us our sin, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight. Let's just talk about the word justified for a moment. It's going to be important to understand this. To be justified is to stand rightly before God. To be declared righteous. When we talk about justification, we think of the great exchange. Our sins being put on Christ. His perfect life given to us. And so when God sees Christ's life in our place, God can say, not guilty, justified. It's a legal term. And what he's arguing here is by the works of the law, no human being will be found not guilty. Right standing before God. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It was never the purpose of the law to bring about justification. The purpose of it was to show us we're accountable to God in our sins and the wrath of God is abiding on us. And then he says in verse 21, here's the good news. But now the righteousness of God, this right standing before God, has been manifested, been put on display apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to this display that's put on of righteousness. And then it says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Right standing before God comes how? Not by keeping the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Think. Here's, here's where I'm just, I'm sitting here thinking, this is amazing. But now there's perfect righteousness, sinners who have the wrath of God on you. There's perfect righteousness right over here. And it's for believers, not law keepers. You starting to feel the good news? There's righteousness that came down for believers. 
And so I asked the question in number six, do I really believe that I can't be good enough and that I need a foreign righteousness comes from faith, not by works? I can sit here and teach that lesson all day long and not believe it in my heart. As I'm trying to earn my standing before God in how perfect I can live my life, find my joy in my accomplishments or my own righteousness? Do I really believe that I can't be good enough, that I need a foreign righteousness? And then look at what he says, for there's no distinction for all of sin, Jew, Greek, there's no distinction between the two. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, most of you probably heard that verse a thousand times. For all have sinned. That's the, where we stop. But this verse is very helpful because it, just, it helps us understand sin. What does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? Well, anything you do in your life that diminishes His glory, whether eating a hot dog or riding your bike in such a way where you're not doing it for the glory of God, is sin. You starting to feel the pervasiveness of our sin? The hopelessness of us ever not sinning and being good enough before God? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he says. Do, do you understand that sin is not just smoking, drinking, having sex outside of marriage and gossip? It's riding your bike, watching your TV. It's, you know, going to the nursing home and visiting the, the church member who is there for your own glory and not for God's glory. See how desperately sick and how desperately we need a foreign righteousness? And so he says, "For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. Let's just stop there. This is craziness. Okay, follow the, follow the argument. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are found not guilty and are justified. You see how crazy that who gets justified in the world's mind? The good people. Problem is, there is no good people. All are under sin. But here we're told that sinners are justified. How? By His grace as a gift. Hoofta. That's the way it has to come because it's not coming from me. It better be coming from God because He's so gracious and He gives good gifts because I'm not going to be justified from what comes out of me You see why the gospel is good news? It is the best news in the world. Every other religion is like, you want to get to God? Well, try to live up to this standard. That's what you call a burden that buries you that you can never, never achieve. We have good news for people. Sometimes we might not act like it. We might seem like people that all we want to do is make the unbelieving world live according to our morals without ever sharing the good news. It's really easy for us to not be good news people. But granted, what's, I mean, what's our message? How does it start out? The wrath of God's on you for sin. It's not an easy message, but it is good news. And this is all under the question, do I understand the nature of salvation by grace alone? And there's three terms in these verses 
justification, justified, redemption, and propitiation. These are important terms in understanding our salvation. So they're justified. They're found not guilty legally before God, not by works, but by grace. They're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption. Now this is slavery terms. Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ comes and lets people out of prison. What prison are they in? The whole world is under sin, enslaved to sin. So when Christ saves us, He gives us a righteousness. He frees us from sins. So we're no longer enslaved. He pays the price. He buys us out of prison. Pays the price for us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then what does he say in verse 25? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. So if the wrath of God is on all mankind for sin, and God is going to retain His righteous judgment and keep His Word, He says, you want to know what's put on display when my Son is hanging on the cross? Your propitiation. There's your mercy seat. Here's how I like to describe that term. Wrath absorber. See, when your sins and my sins were put on Jesus on the cross when we trust in Him by faith, God's full wrath doesn't get swept under the carpet. It comes full bore on Christ and He drinks every ounce of it down, absorbs it up. Is there any other way, He says in the garden? Do I need to drink the cup? The Father doesn't answer and that's His answer. There is no other way to save them. So on the cross, God pours out His wrath. He absorbs the sin. The mercy seat in Israel was the place where sacrifices were made for sins. That cross, Jesus Christ on it, was the place where sins are taken care of. No other place. He justifies us. He redeems us. And He's our propitiation. The anger and wrath of God for sins is swallowed up in Jesus Christ. And then, He says, to be received by faith. So, the way you get in on this is by hearing the grace of God preached spoken, the events of the cross told to you, seeing the mercy in it and saying, that's my only hope. There is no other hope. God saved me. Show grace to me. My hope is there. There is no other hope. That's how you get in on it. It's not by being good enough. It's by falling down and saying, I'm not good enough. I can't run this way. There's no life in my sin. Here's life. To whom else are we going to go, Jesus? You have the words of life, His disciples said. And here's the great... I just absolutely love the wisdom of God. Because look at question number nine. Do I understand how God can be a righteous, forgiving judge? Because in our court system, that's an impossibility. Let's say someone murders your family. Catch him. He's taken to court. And the judge decides he's going to be a forgiving judge and says, I'm going to let you off. What did he just sacrifice? His righteousness. His justice. Right? So the only thing we can comprehend, if there's going to be a good judge, what has He got to bring? 
justice. But look at this. Look at what he says, verse 25. So after he said, put, put on display that salvation is in Christ, this was to show God's righteousness. When the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross, God is holding up a banner saying, I am righteous. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. So as He's giving grace to sinners, whether it be David or Abraham or anybody, as He's giving them grace, what could be the charge against God? You're not just. You may be forgiving. You may be gracious, but you're not just. And here's where God answers the accuser. Here's where God answers Satan if he were to bring that that charge. When Christ is on the cross, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He'd passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be what? Just and the justifier. So justice is done and grace. And counting them not guilty of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is where the gospel becomes just jaw-droppingly beautiful. On the cross, where's your righteousness, God? You see my bleeding son who has more worth than all the people in the whole world? I killed him for sins. There's my righteousness. Well, where's your grace, God? You see my son hanging there on that cross, bleeding in your place? a righteousness outside of yourself, there's my grace. Every other religion falls short. Oh, you're going to be good enough to get in? Really? Well, then your God isn't that great because He just shuffles sin under the rug. He's not just. Any other religion that lets anyone into heaven, you lose a righteous God. He may be gracious, but He's not righteous. Only Christianity can be the answer. It's the only good news. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And then it just, he goes on to chapter 4, it's by grace. Or it's through faith. It's not through works that you get in on this. And then he ends up in chapter 8. I wish I had more time and I don't. Chapter 8, verse 1. Another one of my favorite verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Imagine living your life with the wrath of God on you. But now there is therefore no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Only Jesus could do it. He goes on to say, and then in verse 15 of chapter 8, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So not only do we have the good news that there's salvation in Christ through faith, but that we're adopted into His family. And not only are we adopted into His family, but this, he gets to verse 18, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul's saying, yeah, I'm suffering. You can look at me and feel sorry for it. You don't have a clue. It's not a worthy comparison. Is it worth it? The sufferings I'm experiencing now, it's not worthy to be compared for what's coming to me. I'm already a son. I have glory coming to me. And then he gets to the end of chapter 8. Look at verse 31. He just goes off. What then? Shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare His Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If God did the hard thing and gave His Son for you, how is He not going to give you everything? And then He goes on saying, we're being killed all day long. All these horrible things, tribulation, distress, persecution, nakedness. Verse 35, all these things could happen to us. For your sake, we are being killed all day long and are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But then he says this, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. In all these things, through all this suffering that we might experience on this earth, we are more. What does it mean to conquer it? That'd be good. We're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, that's all things, by the way, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he says the Word of God hasn't failed when Israel isn't believing. Those who are according to the promise are being saved. Those who believe will be saved, chapter 10. And then he ends up here. Here's the practical application. Do I apply the reality of these mercies like Paul asks us to? Look at what he says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What he says is, I appeal to you now, after I've done 11 chapters of laying out the good news, according to those mercies, to live a certain way. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good, acceptable, and perfect. You see, He expects the mercies to produce a life, a way of living. And I was just shown this week a video that Francis Chan did where he has this really long rope. And at the end of the rope, there's this little tiny piece of tape about this big. And he says, this rope represents eternity. And this little piece of tape here represents life on earth. And he says, I look around and I see everyone going, what am I going to do right here? If I do this, if I do this, if I do this, then this last little part of the tape, then I'm going to have enough money in a big house and I'm going to get to do And your whole life, he says, is being lived right here. And what is rarely being thought about as he just starts pulling rope is millions and millions and millions and millions of years. And Christ out of His very mouth, said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where those things won't be destroyed, where they won't be stolen. They'll be kept for all eternity. He says, well, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Jesus said he who seeks to save his little bitty life right here on earth will lose it. But he who loses it lives their life as a living sacrifice in light of the mercies of God. He's already nailed down you're not saved by your good works. But the fruit of that salvation, the light of that, in light of that mercy, is a life that is lived eternally. So I submit to you, maybe the craziest life in the world to live may be the life you lived the last year. You know, you, everything's calculated. You've got to make sure everything's 
right, right here. Very little thought to what God has done for you in Christ. What it means that death can't conquer you. What it means that there's you're more than conquerors. Riches will never be taken from you. And so I want you to ponder and ask the question, in light of this great salvation, are you living a more crazy life than any skydiver could ever live? I loved how Francis Chan said it. He says, I have people all the time say, oh, you mean you sold your house, you moved into this little house, or you went over here on this mission, you risked your life here? Man, that's stupid. You have a family. Francis Chan says, no, you're stupid. Look how you're living your life for this. This is foolishness. I'm normal. I'm calculated. This is safe. Living a self-sacrificial life for Christ. What's crazy is living the American dream in light of the mercies of God. So it's my prayer in light of the Gospel you would be so secure in the foreign righteousness on your behalf and so free to give yourself because it's all waiting for you. This present suffering isn't worthy to be compared. Father, I pray that this wouldn't just be a sermon I preach, but these realities would become more true in my own heart. Lord, I feel the pull of the flesh so easily. My own heart is taken captive with things that lose perspective from Your mercy and grace, the way things really are. Lord, I pray that I would know that I only have a little snippet of time to live on this earth. And then my opportunity is over. Opportunity is over. Lord, there's people here right now that are lost, that have not truly clung to You as their only hope. And where they're going to expend, where they're going to spend billions and billions and billions of years is going to be determined by whether or not Your righteousness was received by faith. Right now, there's opportunity. Right now is the day of salvation. Grace is on the table. Lord, we know that none of us know when we'll be gone, but as soon as we cross the line of eternity, it's that way forever. Help us not to be crazy. Help all of us to cling to Christ as our only hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.